Hi, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. And today we're, we're a Sunday after the epiphany in our calendar. And epiphany means the revelation of Jesus. It can be called Three Kings Sunday because the, that's when the, the Magi are celebrated because they're the ones who came at the light that they saw in the sky, the, the star that they had found in the Hebrew scriptures, actually. And so they came seeking after that light because they had seen in Hebrew scriptures this one little obscure verse that promised that there would be this star that came, and so they show up. So we're talking some about light, but um, because of other things that we've been talking about here, I'm, I'm, I've gotten sidetracked a little bit today, and I'm not unhappy about that. I'm just sidetracked a little bit today um, by another issue, and so you'll see what that is, I believe. Um, so the, the lessons for today are Psalm 89, 20 to 29, Isaiah 42, 1 to 9, Acts 10, 34 to 38, and Matthew 3, 13 to 17. So those are the lessons we're kind of working from today. And the, the psalm is this great proclamation about how he will establish the one he sends, how he will make him his firstborn and higher than the kings of the earth. His love will be kept for him forever and the covenant will stand firm for him. I'll establish his line forever and his throne as the days of heaven. But also in that, there's some other things about crushing his foes before him and striking down those who hate him that seem a little bit at odds with, well, Jesus' life. <laughs> because we don't see his foes struck down before him yet is the answer. And so if we're trying to measure things by today, then what we don't see is the fullness of that sort of prophetic psalm, the proclamation, this, this royal uh, hymn of God's proclamation concerning the Messiah. We don't see the fulfillment of that, but, but then if we fast forward to Revelation and we live by the Holy Spirit and believe that that's actually a faithful representation of what will be, then we will see his foes crushed before him and those others' enemies struck down. So we know ultimately that's what will happen. We see in Revelation the one coming from heaven on the white horse who comes to um, subdue the kings of the earth and to, to break the bondage of sin and death and evil. And Paul talks about that at the end of um, 1 Corinthians when he talks about the final enemy to be defeated is death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's been defeated in the lives of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, that him in Psalm 89 seems to indicate that, that maybe he, Jesus hasn't fully fulfilled the expectations for Messiah, and, and that's part of the issue, right? I mean, it's part of the reason that, that the Jewish people don't see Jesus as Messiah because those things have yet to be completed. So he didn't fulfill the duty of Messiah to establish Jerusalem as the head of all things and to establish the worship of Yahweh as the one true and only God among all the world. And so his failure to do that and to, to bring kingship back is um, the barrier to them seeing him as Messiah. And so epiphany means manifestation, revealing, whatever. And so one of the things I've been thinking about this year that's different from what I've thought in, in the past is, is that in the past, I've really seen epiphany as a time when we just really focus 
on how Jesus is revealed to be the fulfillment of all prophecy, how he is revealed to be God's Messiah, God's Son. And it's so obvious in the um, uh, gospel passage today because it's about the baptism of Jesus. John's been given a sign to look for, right? That's the sign is a, that a, a dove will come and light on Jesus and he will remain there. And so that's what happens. <clears throat> The Spirit of God descended like a dove and came to rest on him, to remain on him. And that manifested Jesus. That was the manifestation that John was given to look for. Well, in addition to that, so John gets the revelation. He gets the manifestation that God told him that he would get. But then beyond that, there's another thing that happens, right? Because nobody else there is looking for this dove thing to come and land and rest on Jesus. So in addition to that comes a voice from heaven. Behold, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That would get your attention. <laughs> this voice from heaven. You know, if you, you could search a lot in the Old Testament and you could say, all right, let's, let's look for places where a voice comes from heaven. And what you'd find is Exodus 20. You'd find when the voice of God gives the commandments, the first 10 commandments to the people, that's when God speaks from heaven to a crowd of people. Otherwise, he's speaking to prophets. He's speaking to Moses. He's speaking to Abraham. He's speaking to individual people. There's only one other place that I can think of where he ever speaks to a crowd of people, and that's Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai. And do you remember what their reaction to hearing that voice from heaven was? Fear. <laughs> abject fear begged Moses don't ever let that happen again if there's more to say you go get it from him because you've been up there you've met with him before you've heard from him in the burning bush and we believe all that because you gave us all the signs that show us that so you go and meet with him because we are not at all sure that if we hear his voice again we're going to live because the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the power of God is revealed in not just the voice, but in all the signs that accompanied it on the mountain. There's fire and lightning and thunder and smoke and all this other stuff. And so, yeah, you would be afraid. So then, as Suzanne pointed out earlier, you know, there's this 400-year prophetic silence from Malachi to the Incarnation. And then suddenly, God's talking all the time to all kinds of people. He talks to Mary. He talks to Zechariah. He talks to Joseph. He talks to shepherds. I mean, it's amazing how much God speaks suddenly. You know, it kind of reminds me of, of an old joke that I remember hearing. A kid's like five or six years old. He's never spoken. They've taken him to all kinds of therapists and tried to figure it out. And they said, well, there doesn't seem to be anything physically wrong with him. I'm not really sure why he hasn't spoken. And then one day they're having dinner. Mom puts dinner down before him and the little boy looks and he says, that's awful. The parents are they're excited because, hey, you can speak. They said, so what's the deal? Why haven't you spoken? You obviously have the ability to do it. He said, until now, everything was fine. And so God doesn't speak for 400 years, and then suddenly he's talking to everybody. And, he, and then John hears this thing, and then everybody sees this thing and hears this thing. And the only time that I can think of in the Old Testament, anywhere where God audibly speaks in that way is at Mount Sinai and it scares everybody to death and so here at the baptism a voice from heaven behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased 
never said anything like that before. <laughs> didn't say it about Abraham, didn't say it about Moses, didn't say it about any of the prophets, didn't say it about David even. It's amazing that God speaks this word at this, I mean, more or less unremarkable event, right? I mean, it, John's been baptizing people. Jesus is just one more guy that comes to be baptized. John knows better because John says, I, uh, hey, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus convinces him, no, we have to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And then it says, and he consented. He is John. <laughs> so John's baptized a lot of people. And as far as everybody else is concerned, this is just another day at the Jordan where John's baptizing people. So he baptizes Jesus and then... This incredible thing happens where a voice comes from heaven and proclaims, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, I can remember listening to Tony Evans probably 30 years ago. I was driving down to Tampa from Knoxville and it was driving in the middle of the night and I'm cruising along and Tony Evans is telling a story about some people that he and his wife had befriended. They were part of the church. He said, but they weren't saved. And he knew what they weren't saved, and they knew they weren't saved. They just came. They'd never really reacted, never, you know, kind of got it. And they were at his house one night for dinner, and they're all sitting in the living room before dinner, and Billy Graham was on television. <clears throat> and Tony said, you know, I, I preached to this guy for 10 or 15 years, and nothing happened. Nothing's going on. He said, Billy Graham's preaching. He gives the simplest me message about salvation and the cross you'd ever hear. He said, I preached it a hundred times myself. This guy had probably heard me preach this same message of, of the cross and the resurrection and how you get reconciled to God. He said, he's in there, and he said, I'm listening to him. He's good. He said, I enjoy listening to Billy Graham. He said, but then at the end of it, he says, okay, so he, he makes an altar call for whoever, you know, wherever he is. And he said, but if you're at home and you're watching this, just drop down on your knees and pray this prayer with me. He said, I looked at those people down on their knees, pray it. <laughs> he said, I'm looking and saying, what did he say? <laughs> I, I've said that. What did he say? He said, but the thing is, Billy Graham did. He said, better than I and better than everybody. And the reason he had such success was Billy Graham gets out of the way. He gives the message, but he doesn't draw all the attention to himself. And so the message is able to be carried to the people, and the people are able to hear it. And so I would say that's what Jesus did. He got out of the way. He didn't do what his flesh would have had him do, right? He didn't go into the wilderness and get tempted a little bit later. He didn't go in and follow the desires of the flesh. Here again, in the same way, he is the Messiah. He is the sinless one. And yet he submits himself to baptism. And you'll, you know who's baptized? Sinners. <laughs> But Jesus goes and submits himself to that baptism as though he were a sinner. And it's there that he um, connected with, identified himself with sinners. And then on the cross, sin is transferred to the one who identified with sinners. He fully identified not only with sinners, but with sin on the cross. And he took that to the tomb. And then he came back. And sin, the power of sin, died because Jesus first identified with sinners. It's a remarkable event. But at the time, if that voice doesn't come from heaven, nobody knows the significance. After that, everybody's got to keep an eye on him. Oh, never heard that happen before. Never seen anything like that. Never heard anything like that ever happening. I think we're going to have to keep an eye on him. So God's setting him up, right? <laughs> Here you go. 
if you think back to the book of Job, which we're going to talk about a little bit over the next couple of weeks, if you think back to the book of Job, it's, it's the same thing, right? When Satan comes and, and God says, where you been? I'm wandering up and down on the earth and to and fro in it, seeing if everything's okay. Hey, did you consider my servant Job? I mean, and what happens, right? He sets him up as a lightning rod and says, you can have him. You can have this part of him. You can have this part of me. You can have this. So he sets him up as a lightning rod. So when God's voice comes and says, behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Jesus is immediately a lightning rod. The Magi come and didn't get their attention. They wouldn't even go with him, with the Magi. They wouldn't even go to Bethlehem six miles away to see the one that the Magi believed to be the king because he hadn't fulfilled their prophecies and the things that they were looking for because they weren't looking correctly. <clears throat> you know, it's I can remember Mike Breen years ago talking about in a group, there's probably 250 people there, and he said something about, you know, the, they're like frog Christians. Anybody's kind of looking at him like, what is he talking about? He said, y'all know what frog Christians are? He probably didn't say y'all because he's from Sheffield. Um, but he, what he said was, he said, they're, they're the people that you talk to all the time and you say, ah, I was reading in Jeremiah today. And their response is, read it, read it, read it. <laughs> it's not making any difference. It's not sinking in. You're not allowing the spirit to unfold the word for you. You're doing it on your own power. And you become bored possibly with it and it's just something you know you've memorized it without it actually having permeated your being at all and so but this is different it captures their attention and now people have to be watching Jesus and so he begins this ministry and we'll see next week when he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan so we'll see that and we see in the promise from Isaiah 42 we see promises there, this is, I'm the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people. Those are the Jews. A light for the nations. That's the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the darkness. From the prison, those who sit in the darkness. I'm the Lord. That's my name. My glory I will give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. But he does share that glory with this one the one that he calls his beloved son this day, that glory is shared. And we see that no more clearly than in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Revelation 4, all praise directed to the throne and the one who sits on the throne. Revelation 5, one looking like a lamb that was slain comes before the throne. And the same praise that in Revelation 5 had been given to the one on the throne is now given to the lamb looking like it was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> So he does share his glory with another, but that another is another member of the Trinity, of the same essence, the same substance as the Father himself. A lot of theology where, where we say there's something called the Trinity and Jewish people will say that's a real problem. You have three gods. And we say, no, we have one God. They're of the same substance as the Father. It's because of passages like this, I am the Lord, that's my name, my glory, I will give to no other. Because Jesus receives the same glory the Father receives. He receives our worship. He receives our praise in the same way. Because there's a further revelation, not just of who Jesus is, but of who the Father is. Jesus says, I've come to make him known. 
That's the role, the job that Jesus comes to bring. And so what does he do? He brings, he comes as a light to the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out from prison those who sit in darkness. And so where does this darkness come from? How does that happen? And that's the question that I'm not going to answer over the next 10 minutes. That's just not what I'm going to do. I want to introduce that a little bit because, well, because Peter does in that Acts passage right there. He says at the end, he's, they just baptized the household of Cornelius. And, and so Peter, and, and they, not only that, but the whole bunch of them started speaking in tongues. And so Peter says, hey, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And here's the important part. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so we've been talking here over, I don't know, it's been months from time to time. It just sort of got coalesced in my mind last Wednesday when we were talking. But we've been talking a lot about who, what is an understanding of Satan, the devil, Lucifer, all that. How do we see that and how does that differ from Jewish understanding? And so I want to introduce that topic a little bit today just to tease it slightly and partly because I don't feel prepared completely to talk about it myself. So the the Jewish concept of Satan uh, is vastly different <laughs> from a Christian understanding of Satan. We see him as an adversary, not just to us, but to God. And that is not the way Jews understand Satan. They understand him as an angel who has been given a particular task, and that task is to tempt mankind. And he's there to serve that role. He's only doing his job. And it's not for our destruction that God gives him that job. It's for our benefit because we become stronger and we become more readily able to and willing to, to do the right thing because we're so tempted to do the wrong thing. And so we're always being tested in our obedience to God, but it's because we have to be <laughs> if we're going to grow. And I do understand that. That makes perfect sense to me. I don't grow un unless I, I'm, I'm forced to, unless I'm forced against something. I, I don't get bigger in the gym unless I'm lifting heavier weight. I, I have to be constantly tested in order to grow, to get bigger, to get stronger. I have to be tested. I have to learn to say no. I have to say, I'm going to stand here rather than go there because that seems more pleasing to me, but it won't be good for me. And so we have to, we're testing our knowledge of Scripture. We're testing our, our ability to withstand temptation, to stand in the Holy Spirit, to side with God, to side with good rather than evil. So that's the way they see Satan. He's doing a job. And, and I could honestly say that that is almost unilaterally the way that, that, that Satan was seen and understood in Judaism for almost all of its history. In the 11th and 13th through the 13th century, there was a great flowering of Jewish learning in Spain and other parts of, 
of, of Europe, but, but particularly in Spain, there, there's this great flowering. And, and so some of the greatest scholars known to Judaism come from that time and from that place. There's a different conception that starts coming in there. And then from that, we get things like Kabbalah. And so we get Hasidic Judaism that comes from that. That, that starts in, in the 18th century. There's a different idea there. It's way more Christian understanding than in, in that part of Judaism than any other part of Judaism. And so the rest of Judaism looks and says, well, it's because they were in Spain and they were influenced by the Christians that were around them. And so they brought some of that into Judaism. But other than that, apart from that, then everything would be fine. And they point to passages, um, some interesting passages that I wouldn't honestly would not have thought about had I not done the study on this, and, and that is, they will say things like, look look right here, in Deuteronomy 30, 15, <clears throat> see, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. And then in Isaiah 45, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And they take that, and, and, and their, their theology then around where does evil come from is God. That he created both those things. And the reason would be we need sort of this binary thing, this dualism to, to sort of understand good. I need to see what's not good. And it's got a name and that's evil. So it's, it's clean and unclean. It's that same basic binary um, idea that, that I can't know something's good unless I know what's not good. So it's good in comparison to something else, and you know it's where language works. So they said that, that God created evil, but evil gets defined differently and gets defined in a different way. And, and so, but it also then has one other effect on Jewish Christian theological differences, because if, if there's good and evil, and, and evil exists because God wants us to choose the good rather than the evil, even though He's the author at some level of darkness and evil and all that if he wants us to choose those things doesn't they don't see that that says anything about god <clears throat> it says something about humankind though and what it says about humankind and, and this is true in deuteronomy it's also true in in joshua because what is joshua doing joshua says the same thing in his valedictory address in um, in joshua 24 he says the same thing as for me and my house right we choose the lord so there's a binary choice to make there, just like um, Moses sets before him in Deuteronomy. I've set before you this day, life and good, death and evil. Choose. Well, so do you hear the difference there in the way that I'm headed with this in Jewish theology and um, Christian theology as far as, as anthropology, the understanding of man is concerned? It, what, what is implied in, in those two passages is that you're able to choose that you have free will and that you're able to choose life over death. You're able to choose good over evil. What Christians believe is different, right? I mean, because what we believe is you don't actually. You participated in the fall. Every part of you participated in the fall. You don't have free will. Your conscience is bound. And so you, you can hear, this is huge for Luther, right? He gets into this disputation with Erasmus over the idea of, of, of humankind having free will. And, and Luther just goes on this gigantic beatdown of how can you possibly believe? And it's called the bondage of the will is, is the uh, 
the name of that book. And so then um, there's a thing that Luther said in all of this that then gets distorted and taken completely out of context. Dietrich Bonhoeffer provides a great corrective for this. Luther says, sin boldly, but love God more. And what that's not saying is you've got license to do whatever you want as long as you love God. What it's saying is, is that Luther says that everything you can do in this life because of the fall, everything you do in this life is fraught with uh, or, or at least tinged by sin. So every decision you make, you can't make a pure decision. No matter how altruistic it might be, no matter how self-denying it might be, there's something of you in there rather than it being purely an act of um, altruism. And so he says, sin boldly to love God more. So what he means is choose the right thing and do it knowing that because you're doing it, there's sin involved in it. Love God more. And so cling to grace. Make the best choice and decision you can make under any circumstances of what's good and what's not good. And then do that knowing that it's because it's you, it's imperfect. So there, that's a, there's nothing remotely like that in Judaism. And so all these things just kind of coalesce and come together. And, and so you can't take these things in an isolated fashion. You can't say, all right, here's what they believe about Satan and, and then hold that by itself. Because if they believe that about Satan, then free will is an implication in all that, that you've got to be able to choose between good and evil. Christianity changes that. Is that wrong? And my answer to that is no. Jesus didn't come just to reveal the Father. He came to reveal the truth about all things. So wherever there's a misconception, that gets cleared up in the way that Jesus does things. Satan is only mentioned, and not as a name, a couple of times in the entire Bible. You know, Anybody know the first time was? I didn't even know this until recently. The first time that that word appears is actually in Numbers, and it's to do with Balaam. It's the Satan the adversary who will come and stand in front of him. And that's an angel is the way we read that, right? But it's, it's an adversary who will stand and bar the way to him cursing Israel. So that's the first time it comes up. And then you see that again in um, that same idea, again, in Job. And we've already talked about that a little bit, but I, I had no earthly idea. It was part of the Balaam story. So it barely comes up as a concept in Judaism. Jesus talked about it a lot. So the reason Jesus talks about anything a lot is because somebody's wrong <laughs> and it needs to be corrected. So, all right, so we'll look at that over the next season of time. But Jesus comes to bring light into the world. The only name actually given to the Satan, because that's how it always is, it's, a, it's not a proper name. There's only one place where it is, and we're not even sure that that's a proper name. And that's also in Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, when it speaks of Lucifer the morning star who has come and has fallen to earth. And Lucifer means bringer of light. When Luther writes uh, him, a mighty fortress, he says he is the prince of darkness. And so what happened between light bearer or bringer of light, whichever way you want to do it, and prince of darkness that we know him, something happened in between those two things. And, and I believe that it's, the light of the world. The light of the world shines and everything that looked light before now looks like darkness. 
because his light is true light. Everything else is not. And so Jesus brings true light to everything that he talks about and everything that he touches. He brings something radically new and different to the table where it's needed. And that's the reason that that passage that we read in uh, Isaiah ends with, behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. So Jesus talks about things and causes us to think differently, not just about the Father, but about everything. Our understanding of our lives and what it is that tears at us. And Paul grasps that intuitively. And you see him in uh, at the end of uh, Romans 8, when he says, what can separate us from the love of God? And then he lists this long list of things, principalities and powers and demons and all this kind of stuff. And he says, no, none of that stuff can separate you. It stuff has power is what he's saying, but Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit living in you has the power to never allow that to separate you from the love of God. And so Paul talks about those things. Paul more fully assimilated Jesus' theology than anybody you'll ever see. But it's interesting that here when Peter speaks to uh, the house of Cornelius, those, that, that Greek soldier, when he speaks to that family, he says that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. We've got to think about bigger topics than just Satan, I think, to do that. We have to think about this idea of free will. And, and where, where, are we right about that? Do we get something wrong about that? Does Jesus have much to say about it? Yeah, he does have some things to say about it, sort of obliquely. But you know what really has something to say about it? And, and I think this is where I'm going to end because I think it's ending at the beginning. And so ending at the beginning is this. <clears throat> Here's why I would make the argument that if we believe the story about the virgin birth. If we believe that the Holy Spirit came and Mary became uh, a child from the Holy Ghost, overshadowing her, then I think that points us to the issue of free will. Because this, because she wasn't born, he wasn't born of the union of two human beings. He had a different nature. He had God's nature and human nature fused there in Mary's womb. And why? Because he needed it because he had to be able to say no, always. But he had to also be able to say yes. And so those two things had to stand in tension. So in order for those two things to stand in tension required a different kind of man. And so I believe that this whole idea points us in that direction as well. So the idea of Satan has to change at the same time Jesus is giving us a new anthropology, a new understanding of man. Those two things actually go together. And there's a reason that both those two things have to stand in tension, but it's the same reason that it differs from what came before. It's part of the new things God now declares.